0: Hi everyone, Dr. Tracy Jones on this Tremendous Leadership podcast, Leaders on Leadership. We are talking with John Solander. John has had decades of experience in network marketing and direct sales, and we are so excited to hear his viewpoint on paying the price of leadership. You're listening to Tremendous Leadership with Dr. Tracy Jones. Hi everyone, this is Dr. Tracy Jones. Welcome to the Tremendous Leadership Podcast, Leaders on Leadership, where we pull back the curtain on leadership and really go deep into what it takes for leaders to pay the price of leadership. And today, I am tremendously excited to have my dear friend, best-selling author, entrepreneur par excellence, John Solander. And John Solander has been a top earner in his industry for 35, 36 years. He has held the top rank in four network marketing companies in that time frame. He holds the distinction of being recognized as the President's Cup winner with one company the first year of such recognition in 1992, and then having the same distinction for a second company in 2010. He has also consulted for some of the leading brands in the industry as an outside consultant. And in his personal life, He is one tough guy. He's earned his black belts in both judo and Brazilian jiu-jitsu. He also has uh, participated in wrestling, track and field, as well as powerlifting, and has a long athletic career. So we're going to hear a lot about that grit and determination because John's also an athlete. So I am just so excited. John, thank you so much for being on my podcast.
1: Well, thank you, Tracy. Thank you for having me.
0: You're welcome. And John and I go back because we published John's book, his third edition of his book, Moving Up 2020. And we're going to talk about that at the end as he weaves some of his leadership lessons and things like that through it. But John knew my father and he knows what it takes to pay the price of leadership. And John, what we've been really doing on this podcast is talking with leaders to share with other leaders that are listening right now that are in the trenches, not the theorist, not the pie in the sky, but the people really out there fighting the good fight, and it is a tough fight right now. And we want to break down the four prices of leadership, and I want you to share with our listeners what these mean to you, all right? So you ready? Yes, ma'am. Okay. So one of the first prices of leadership that my father talked about was loneliness. And we've all heard the phrase, it's lonely at the top. Uh, But loneliness means different things for different leaders. And sometimes there is just going to be a time when you're gonna to have to step out from the crowd and make some decisions that may not always have even your most ardent supporters all in when you first decide to make it. So John, you've grown a lot of different industries and you've been highly, hugely successful in a really tough field for decade upon decade. How, how do you go out and forge the path and stand alone?
1: Well, I, I think, sometimes I think I'm too, Naive to know how tough things are. Uh, sometimes I, I think it, it's good not to be overwhelmingly smart. Not that I don't consider myself smart, but sometimes I think I, I look at, at problems with the idea of just how do I solve it. Uh-huh. And years ago, um, one of the guys who uh, did some writing for Jim Rohn uh, said, You know, you have the ability to make something really complex sound very simple
2: hmm.
1: And I would compare that um, to maybe something that George Bush, the first George Bush uh, said um, about leadership that um, not only is it not easy, but that it is something that you have to be able to look at the big picture and make everyone understand what the big picture is
2: mm.
1: if you're going to move forward and it was a reference he made during the Gulf war. I don't remember specifically what it was, but it was along those lines where you had this very complex situation happening, and how are you gonna make it simple enough that not only we the American people understood it, the world understood it, our colleagues understood it, and frankly, our enemy understood it as well you know mm-hmm. um and, and I'm not comparing myself to someone who leads people into battle i I lead them in a business battle uh but sometimes I lead them in personal battles right um and I think that when you lead people into anything, whether it's that they've gotten a bad diagnosis at the doctor and they come to you as a friend, as a colleague, as an upline, as, a, uh, as somebody that they know, uh, somebody that I know from the sports world, for example, that knows me in a whole different life than my business life, that comes to you and confides in you that they have a situation going on in their life, how do you lead them? And how do you not be cavalier? And how do you take every situation serious and yet at the same time, try to problem solve it with somebody? And sometimes, and I, and I think this is one of the things that always frustrates me is sometimes there is no answer.
2: Hmm.
1: Sometimes the answer is that there's no answer. Mm-hmm. And we in business, we all solve problems, right? And that's that's how we make money. That's how we achieve, right? We've got to solve the problem. Right. And sometimes you can't solve the problem.
0: Right. Well, it's interesting because you really hit on... Um, In the fact that um, with network, uh, direct sales and network marketing, you have to really deal with, whereas maybe in other fields of work, like where I was in more traditional brick and mortar, it was your personal life stays at home, Um, you know, even in a lot of the technical fields, but you're, you're dealing with more of the whole person. So you have to deal with, like you said, leading them into business battles and also dealing with, you know, we're people and we're going through these hardships. And when you go through hardships, you feel completely alone. And that's what's really tough about this whole thing that's going on right now is people feel kind of isolated isolated and very, very lonely and depressed and stuff like that. So it's interesting that you, you look at that loneliness as a leader and you see it not in yourself. I love that you say you're not, I love that because sometimes we don't want to know all the bad that's going on, but like God shields us from it. Because if, if I really saw how bad the mountain was, I don't think I'd make it, but a little bit of ignorance is, can be bliss. But I really like that you threw that in. Hey, when you started, when you decided to go into this field. Tell me about how you made that decision to step out. You talk about that in the first part of your book, but tell me how you decided to change your course from your set of values and your worldview and said, Hey, um, the entrepreneurial life is for me. And, uh, the, the economy, the free commerce, talk to me about that.
1: Well, there's a couple of things that happened. Number one, sometimes that, 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 uh, expression about, um, you know, no opportunity, uh, you have to look at it as how do you take no opportunity and turn it to opportunity. So for example, um, my vehicle the last three years that I went to university was a United States mail Jeep. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in one of these things, Tracy, or anybody else has seen your listeners have, but here, here's a couple of issues. Number one, it's got one seat for the driver. Uh-huh. Okay. And it's got a mail rack next to it. So I never had a, a, a date in college that I could pick up and say, hey, I'm going to pick you up. I'm going to go to the movies or, or something. I didn't have a vehicle that would accommodate that. I was so broke uh, because I, I, was, you know, I was basically putting myself through school. I mean, I, you know, at the end of the day, it was like every nickel went to tuition and books and gasoline and rent and you know, all the other things. So you know, I, I was one of those kids that was like I was going to make it because I didn't really care what what the issues were, I was I was gonna make it, but I also knew I couldn't I couldn't drive the Camaro that some of my friends were driving. My mm-hmm. mom and dad bought them. You know, I didn't have parents that could buy me a car. You know? So what happened with that? That was a negative, right? The car was a negative. Little blue, really ugly little blue old male jeep. I bought it from the Hackensack. Ironic, like I was born Hackensack New jersey and I bought it from the Hackensack post office they used to sell these things on saturday afternoons and they call it a surplus sale it was a thousand dollars us so i bought this thing and what did i do with it? a couple of things number one i worked part-time as an electrician's helper and because i did they would let me pick up the wire and skin it and then there was copper under it so i could take the copper to the junkyard and the junk man would pay me you know per pound on on how much copper i would bring right so that gave me a little bit of extra money so i turned that negative of that mail Jeep with no dates to a positive because it created some cash flow. Now, when I started my first distributorship in April of 1983, I still drive in the mail Jeep. Okay. I'm still in college. I haven't graduated yet. And what happens is we start that business, right? I hear then president Reagan speak at my commencement, right? I, I joined the company I was with Herbalife International April 18th, 1983. May 18th, 1983, one month later, President Reagan comes to Seton Hall to speak at my commencement. Now, at that point, let me give you a little reference point. At that point, I am a dyed-in-the-wool left-wing socialist. I believe business people are inherently bad, Mm -hmm. and that they're they're the man, and that they're going to find some way to take advantage of anyone who works for them. Mm -hmm. Because that's the way I was brought up. That's what I was told. Mm -hmm. And I believed it. I didn't know any better. Reagan comes, and I didn't want to go to my college commencement. To begin with, because it was Ronald Reagan, the, right. the union breaker, the strike breaker, the, 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 the guy who was a Democrat that became a Republican, God forbid. And I'm not do to get into politics here. I'm sure we have some of both parties listening. But um, and by the way, I'm not fond of either party right at the moment. So so <laughs> let me say that. But but uh, I think they both have lost their roots, but and their minds, frankly. But all that said. When I heard President Reagan speak about a couple of things, number one, mentorship. And I said, wait a minute, he's talking about what I'm getting from this new business that I joined.
2: Mm.
1: I was getting mentored by my upline. I was getting mentored by the company. They were teaching me some skills about how to make money I'd never heard before. Mm -hmm. So here the president of the United States is talking and I'm listening real first like this, you know, all the answers are no money. And by the end, I'm leaning all the way forward in my chair. And I probably was the first one out of my chair when he was done speaking because he was so powerful and yet gentle. If yes. you could be both, yes. most powerful human being on the earth, right, now, right, right at that time, was also gentle. Mm-hmm. He was talking to my heart. He was telling me, "Hey, kid, you got a shot. Get mentored. Listen to these people."
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now there's four thousand people there, by the way. Mm-hmm. But I felt like he was talking like you and I are right now,
2: mm-hmm. and I
1: was I was way in the back, right? I wasn't up front or anything, right? And I felt like the president was talking. So when he talked about mentorship. Number one. Number two, when he talked about. What capitalism could do to free people and what it had already done. This is 1983, spring of 1983. So the whole Soviet Union, the Iron Empire is falling apart over there, right? With, ca- with communism. And what do those people want? They want what we got mm-hmm. that we take for granted. They want capitalism, okay? They want the ability to walk into a store and make choices, mm-hmm. right? They want the ability. To, it's a lot more than that, obviously, as you and I well right. know. Right. right. They want the ability to put a dollar in their pocket for harder work and get to keep it. Or keep most of it anyway, and he's talking about all of these reference points that I had never heard before. Wow. And by the end of that, I was I was I was committed. I uh-huh. voted for Reagan and everything else, and I became uh-huh. I became a, a young Reagan Republican at that point. Okay, but I was busy now. I had already started my 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 first real business venture, so I didn't have time to really get caught up in politics because I'm already in action with my business. So I graduate. And as I began to construct an organization, I lived in Northern New Jersey at the time. The way that that company used to get us our product was they would air freight it into Newark airport. Now there were a lot of people about our age right now that I recruited into my organization. Some I recruited their kids and they recruited mom and dad or even grandma and grandpa, for example. Well, those people didn't want to truck down to Newark airport to pick up product. Right. Mm -hmm. So I took that same little ugly blue u.s postal service truck and i said i'll charge three percent freight and i'll go to the airport twice a week tuesday and friday and i'll pick the stuff up and i'll break it down and i'll make sure everybody's got their individual order and i'll bring it back and i would meet people at at, at one of two uh supermarkets in the mm-hmm. area right and they could pick up their product and i made an extra three percent for doing that and they right. were happy to pay because they didn't have to spend their valuable time to go down to pick up product right and right you know one one of my early distributors owned uh, six dairy queens. Well he wasn't going to truck down to the airport to pick up product. He was you know yeah. especially in the spring, he's busy selling ice cream cones and making money. So what I found was I could take something that was a negative and make it a positive mm. if I didn't sell myself a hundred percent on the negativity mm. of the
2: situation. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. OK, you know, some people might say try to find a bright spot, you know, whatever reference point you want to use. But that's what I did was I basically said, hey, let me take what I've been given here. Let me take a lemon and make a lemonade. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and right. so and it was a good experience for me because I, I've been doing that now for almost 40 years, just kind of going, OK, let's look at let's look at the situation and let's see what we can do unless right. you haven't affect affected positively. And, and as I said, one of my frustrations is I can't always affect it positively. Right. But right. I can try. I can try.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, thank you, John, for that. Okay, the next topic he talks about is weariness. And uh, he talks about that anytime you're building anything worthwhile, you're gonna have some people that are not doing their fair share and other people that are. And I know in my business, whether you went all in or not, you still got paid, whether you, you know what I'm saying? But your industry is completely different. You're in sales. My dad grew up in insurance and stuff, and it was straight commission. So if you didn't do what you were supposed to do, you didn't get to feed your family. So how do you deal with, how do you deal with the weariness of dealing with people? How do you stay motivated um, when, when you know what they need to do, but it's, it's just exhausting at times? How do you deal with that?
1: Well, I, you know, I, I deal... I I always think about some of the people that I've known or known of and how they deal with it. Okay. Okay. Mark, Mark Hughes, who was the founder of Herbalife and unfortunately passed away at a young age, 40, I think he was 44 when he, when he passed. But Mark used to say when he got tired of talking to people, he talked to more people.
0: Ah, Okay.
1: And that kind of worked for me. Okay, okay. Where, hey, I, I believe me, I get nos all the time. Still, in my business, I, I still have people that just, you know, I'm not doing that. Those pyramid schemes and, you know, all that other nonsense. You know, and then you got to fight with them to tell them what they don't know. And if I have to sell them on the industry, how do I ever get to finally sell them on my particular company and brand? Right. I mean, it's such a fight, right? Right. But what Mark Mark taught, and he was absolutely right, was talk to more people. Huh. Okay. Um, that's one thing. And then I think from another standpoint, from an athletic standpoint, one of my heroes is uh, the great Dan Gable, who 1972 won the the Munich Olympics, uh, unbeaten, unscored upon in international freestyle wrestling. And the only thing I'll give, most people aren't familiar with wrestling. Some of your folks in Pennsylvania, of course, are there, but most people aren't. Um, Gable Gable won that Olympics without giving up a singular point in six matches. He Hmm. did that after having knee surgery a couple of months before the Olympics, by the way, like it's unheard of, but to give a parallel, let's give a baseball parallel. There's been one guy in history who was with the Reds, uh, Johnny Vandermeer who pitched two no hitters back to back back in the 1930s. Never been done since. This would have been like pitching six no hitters back to back. Hmm. It's not done. The level of competition is too good. Mm-hmm. It's too easy to give up a point. The man did not give up a single point anyway the greatest you know the greatest of the great, okay, huh. in my opinion. but how Dan Gable thought as a competitor was something that I borrow and I'm, I'll never be Dan Gable. I'm not worthy <laughs> I'm not even in his league <laughs> athletically or intellectually. The man is a genius in so many ways but gable. I remember reading his book as a kid after he won in 72. But Gable talked about the fact that he would step up his training when he would see in his head that his opponent, whether it was a Russian, a Bulgarian, a, another American for that matter, when, when he would see that guy get off the mat, take his shoes off and go get in a shower is when he would start pushing the bike harder in his after training. Huh. Okay. This is a man who trains seven hours a day to prepare for the 72 Olympics. Wow. Okay. Seven hours. I don't know what you do. Seven hours a day to train in any sport. I can can figure out about three hours, about seven hours. I, I can't even think of some of the things this guy put himself through, but you know, you want to be the best, you know, it's, it's why we talked about him 50 years later is why kids who weren't even born talk about him it's why their grandfathers tell their kids about their sons about him guys who never wrestled know Dan Gable is Uh he's got a great TED talk if anybody wants to go and listen to it, you want to think about a a winner and then of course he was able to do something unique that that you know Kel Sanderson's been able to do there at Penn State as well and and others in 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 certain sports is go from being the best of what he did as an athlete to also being the best with what he did as a coach leading Iowa to I uh, think it was 16 or 17 national championships, and like 20 Big Ten championships. I just the guy's unparalleled. His influence is huge. But but go back to that point. When Gable saw all the other guys quit, all his competitors quit. They were done for the day. They were going home to their wives or girlfriends or back to their dorm or whatever to relax, is when he said, Okay, now I gotta train harder. Hmm. Okay. And and that's always kind of been my work ethic: is uh-huh. okay, when I think everybody else is done. Okay. Now it's time to work. Right. Okay. And for example, let me give you an example from my own career. When 2010, I was the first winner of what they call Now we now call it the Dr. Buenos award. It's like the, the distributor of the year award for our individual company. Mm -hmm. It's named after the doctor, one of the two doctors that created our core product. And I remember getting off the stage, my wife and kids were with me and, you know, lots of handshakes and pictures and all of that. And I gra- grabbed one of my top distributors who had also won another category that night. I grabbed him. I said, James, come on. Let's take a walk. What do we do right then? We started planning the next 12 months. Okay. Yep. Influence again. Yep. Okay. I enjoyed the night. It was a nice time. Okay. Right. But I'm not a drinker or party animal, so I wasn't going to go to the bar afterwards. What am I going to do? I'm going to plan the next 12 months. What are we going to do? Here's one of my lead guys, five feet from me, and I grabbed him by the elbow, and I said, let's go work. Love okay. it. And we can yeah. yeah. okay? and, and that's that 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 work ethic again that you hear, you know, and, you know, Gable's one example, and certainly others in all different walks of life, but that's that was that mentality of what's next.
0: Mm-hmm. And and not all activity is created equal. You have to really make sure that it's and, and that's what I want to talk about the next point. Abandonment. So what you're talking about is activity abandoning abandoning what you want and like to think about. For what you need and ought to think about. So maybe you wanted to stay and celebrate, but you know, abandonment, my dad talks about that in the price of leadership. It's just being very targeted. And hey, I know all these other people are offering me sweeter deals, or maybe I'm thinking I should jump ship and do something else. But talk to me about how you stayed honed in, because like I said, you have navigated this industry like nobody else, and you've been in and out of great, successful companies and always left a trail of success. How did you stay? Even, But you've been fluid. You've had a lot of changes. How did you know when it was time to close here and go to something else? How do you stay so finely tuned on all that stuff?
1: Well, to be honest with you, there's been times where... I decided to abandon certain things because of ethical issues.
0: Okay. Been there? On, yes.
1: Clear. Yep. I, I chose to stay with my current situation for now 24 years because I knew we had product integrity. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Total product integrity. And, and uh, not always the business integrity we needed, by the way. Right. Right. Okay. Uh, corporately, but field. The field was always committed because the brand, the product came from the scientific community. Mm-hmm. So I, I chose to stay mm-hmm. uh, and 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 will the rest of my career. And I get, I get, you know, I still get the odd phone call. I got one two weeks ago out of the blue. Somebody wanted me to do something and, and hey, it could have been fun, could have been lucrative. But not for me, because it would have been a distraction from what I'm doing, which is frankly important. I believe to mankind what mm-hmm. we're doing with our product and see that that's the thing too. You know, people get in direct sales for a lot of reasons, but you have to make stuff a life project. Okay. This was a life project for me, network marketing. Okay. Mm-hmm. I, I, I wanted to be in net, in network marketing, but I didn't want to be in it with just something that was run of the mill.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Something I could just, you know, I, I worked for a guy down here in Dallas a number of years ago and this is the bad part about getting old, Tracy. Everybody I ever worked with just about dead. But anyway, this this, this fellow used to say a lot of companies were started, and he was absolutely right. A lot of companies were started with the idea and the intention that a couple of entrepreneurs got together, said, "Let's start a company." Mm-hmm. Here's going to be the marketing plan, and now what are we going to sell? Yes. Well, you know, and once again, if you're a good marketer, you could probably put a spin on anything for a little while, mm-hmm. but eventually, you're going to be found out. The great companies in my industry, okay? The handful of great companies, and there's only a handful mm-hmm. after 60 years, are great because generally, they have a great product mm-hmm. or products, okay? They have a product that people will buy whether or not they're a distributor making income or not. Right. If you only have a brand that people will buy because they're getting a check, then you don't have a business. Right in a company and, a, and with, with a brand that I felt people would buy whether they ever derived a dime of income from.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And it took me a number of years to find out. I finally found it. And, and, and it's evolved very, very nicely. And it's continuing to. We're not the only company like that. There's some other very great companies in my industry. But mm-hmm. whether it's the direct selling industry, network marketing industry, multi-level, it's all the same industry, basically. Or it's, you know, Walmart, or it's, general electric or it's it's microsoft or it's apple or it's whatever there's a reason great companies are great mm-hmm. okay i would suggest everybody always always checks out dr jim collins and some of, of his work for example okay because dr collins not only does he study this stuff but he writes about it so well mm-hmm. that you understand the difference in great companies versus good companies
2: mm-hmm.
1: okay? for example as we speak a good company a good company and I won't name the name the brand just in case it gets reversed. And I read it wrong, but I just read this before we got on this call, a very good national chain. Okay. A fitness facilities just filed chapter 11 bankruptcy uh-huh. a couple of hours ago to me, a good company, but not a great company. You know why they didn't work great.
2: Why?
1: Because there, there are a couple of competitors that I'm familiar with. When I would walk in their gyms, I could eat off the floor. Mm -hmm. If there was a piece of paper on the floor, if there was somebody chewed gum and stuck it on the carpet or the back of a treadmill, the great gyms, somebody, whether it was a manager or even a low-level employee, would see it and remove it because they cared about their job and they cared Mm -hmm. about their brand. Mm -hmm. The brand that just filed bankruptcy, I've been in some of their gyms that, frankly, you would not want to use the men's room or women's room. Huh. Okay. So why is that? Now all of a sudden, in a critical time where people are, we're in this economy of need versus want, right? Up up until about March first, we were in a, a want economy. People wanted right. fancy cars, they wanted fancy homes, they wanted fancy items, right? Now we're in a, an economy of need where people are only going to buy what they need. Mm-hmm. So once again, somebody says, "Wait a minute! For the same money, roughly, I can go to this gym that I can eat off the floor. I feel mm-hmm. like I'm at a country club. Where I go to this gym, which is dirty." Mm-hmm. Which are you gonna to go to? I know which one I'm going to. Right. Okay, so that's the type of thing, the type of thinking that develops championship organizations is when you think, hey, wait a minute. Yeah, it might not be my job to take that icky gum off the floor,
2: mm-hmm.
1: but I know a member's not gonna like it. So I'm gonna go get the spatula and I'm gonna clean it up.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, that's the type of thinking that the great companies develop that from the top down, mm-hmm. from the owner, the developer, the CEO, there is not that thing. And and this is what I found in companies that really survive long-term in my industry. There's no specific job for anybody. The job of everybody is brand management, brand development. Huh. Okay. Whether you're the person taking out the trash or the CEO or the top distributor or anything in between, when these companies make it, they all have that philosophy Mm -hmm. that, there is no, you know, protecting the brand, nurturing the brand, growing the brand is something that's all of our responsibilities instead mm-hmm. of saying, so, Well, that's not my job. Nothing drives me crazier than somebody telling me it's not their job. Right. Right. If you if you work in, in in my company, if you work in a great company, it's all your job.
0: Right. Your your right. abandonment then is almost like a message to Garcia. Just mm-hmm. do it. You have to be abandoned to do it, whatever it takes to keep the organization thriving and healthy and not sit there and wait for somebody to tell you what to do or you know worse yet so that's a really it's 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 the flip side because abandonment is usually people equate with okay I'm walking away from something but your version of abandonment is going all in i'm abandoning everything that I have all the resources, my cognitive abilities, my initiative to protecting this brand. And that's such a great insight, John, because I mean, you know, a lot of people on here are entrepreneurs like us. And you know, it's like, well, people are like, well, I don't want to do cold calls or I don't want to do outside sales or I don't want to do B2B. And I'm like, well, dear Lord, you know, when you're when you're like us, you better all figure out how to do it because I'm not big enough or bureaucratic enough or have enough excess, you know, profit that I can just hire certain people to do certain things you better figure it out and we'll figure it out you know because you know none of us is as smart as all of us together and we will figure it out that's right you know well, so you know,
1: Yeah, you know, one other example of that uh, somewhere along the line I, i've read a lot of autobiographies of entrepreneurs
0: mm-hmm.
1: <clears throat> and i remember ray Kroc, the founder of mcdonald's right talked about they used to give out a, and they may still do this i don't know but uh he used to give out at least when he was around when he was alive Mm -hmm. They used to give out a scholarship. I want to say it was $25,000. I apologize to McDonald's if that's not the number, but I I think it was 25 grand that they gave to anybody who came with a good idea that the business eventually used. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: They, if you remember back when we were kids, McDonald's didn't do breakfast. Right. Some young kids out there, I think it was a high school kid, you know, 15, 16 year old kids out there throwing out these hamburger rolls at night. And it dawns on him, he goes, boy, have you stuck an egg on this? Probably tastes pretty good. Hmm. Okay. It does. He went home and, you know, mom and dad said, hey, why don't you write that up and send it to Mr. Crock?" And I don't know, one way, shape, or form, it helped McDonald's to go, yeah. Like, why are we throwing out all this food? That's kind right. of crazy, right? Like, let's right. have breakfast. And I, I guess, and it's probably more from there. I guess they put it on an English muffin now or something. But my my point is, that young man had a good idea. It didn't matter. He was a young kid throwing out the trash in some, you know, McDonald's and wherever he was. Ray Kroc thought it was a good enough idea. He instituted it. It's made that company billions of dollars. I'm sure over the years. So oh, yeah. was it worth it for the company to give the kid, you know, 25 grand for college? Absolutely. Right. And right. So sometimes we're always looking for all these great ideas from all these really smart people, and they don't have them. Sometimes right. it's going to come from somebody who goes, "Well, have you thought about this?" And that's mm-hmm. why you got to listen to everybody doesn't mean you have to agree with everybody, but you should listen at least to say, what do they have to say? I often said this, Tracy, if, if I was starting a company today, any kind of company,
2: mm-hmm.
1: my board of directors would not look like you and I,
2: mm-hmm.
1: there'd be somebody look looked like you and somebody looked like me,
2: mm-hmm.
1: but everybody wouldn't look like us. Right. I'm sure I ha- had ethnicity and at different ages. Why? Right. Because my 15 and 16 year olds see things much differently than you and I do. Uh Okay. And somebody in between somebody, maybe in their mid thirties sees things a little bit different Mm -hmm. and somebody growing up in the inner city sees things a little bit different than somebody growing up in the middle of Nebraska. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't mean that their points are any more or less valuable Mm -hmm. from a marketing standpoint of what people are going to react to. I've learned so much in the last three years from some of my Spanish speaking colleagues. Stuff that I thought I knew that I go, wow, I never thought of that. Wow. Uh-huh. I mean, I I and I listen, I I my Spanish is very limited, so I listen, you know, and for the translation when I go to different meetings. And I learned so much from some of my Spanish speaking colleagues. Some of which, by the way, are half my age. Mm-hmm. Some of them are old dogs, but a lot of them are, you know, 25, 30 years old. They grew up with the iPhone. They grew up with the internet. They grew up marketing with stuff that I wasn't really good at using. Where I'm uh-huh. like, well, why, why, why wouldn't I listen? Because they're half my age. Right. If a smart person is going to listen to everybody, doesn't mean I can do all that they wanted that, that that they're doing. Okay. Right. I, mean, I don't even want to do what they're doing, but it doesn't mean that I should poo-poo it and not listen to it mm-hmm. because it may not even apply to me. But I may I may have somebody you know that I think, wow, that really applies to this or that person. Sorry about that.
0: Oh no problem. Okay. So, yeah. So then uh, you're also talking about as leaders abandoning our own sense that once we uh, get to a certain level that we know it all. <laughs>
2: Yeah. And in our own
0: set. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, like getting my PhD recently, I'm like, man, there was a lot about leadership that I did not know. And it's like, ooh. But you know, it's scary at first because you're like, oh dear lord, how wrong I've been. But then you're like, okay, so I'm learning. You know, give yourself grace and, and uh abandon this thing that you're always gonna make the right decisions all the time. Well, I,
1: I, you know, I, I'll give you one perfect example of what you just said. Mm-hmm. Um I met I met Norman a number of years ago. Uh huh. He was here in Dallas and, and amongst other things most people don't know this but he, you know his dad started the New Jersey State Troopers way right back.
0: Oh I did not know that.
1: Oh yeah huh. yeah he's he, quite quite a quite a family but uh amongst other things uh, I'll never forget him talking about the fact that he and General Powell and you know this probably better than I do being in the military as long as mm-hmm. you were those guys started to prepare at war colleges way way back this phone never rings unless I'm, doing, I'm doing Um That they had started to prepare the war colleges, okay, early on in their careers to have what resulted in in, in the first Gulf War. Mm-hmm. The fight of war and in, in, in basically in the sand, in the desert, that they started that far back. And you think about it, it's one. So you and I would think about it as business. Well, it's one, one subject those guys were really good at. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, they were really good at it. It took them a whole nine days <laughs> right, to do what they needed to do. Right. You know, so, you know, you think about it at, at, at a big macro level like that. and You think it's one subject, but they knew every single thing to do. And they were so in sync and they did, you know, they did the job that they job. That, that, right. That they, in such an efficient manner. They made it look easy. They made something right. very, very difficult. Look we looked at it like, oh, wow, are these guys even fighting back? Well, no, they had it all figured out. They knew what they were going to be, right? So, you know, that execution, you know, and we look at that in sports sometimes. We can look at it in, in, in other pursuits in life where somebody makes something look easy to us, you know? Right. And, but anyway, that, that, that's a perfect example of, you know, one that subject. Is. It
2: spend is. its Spend a lifetime I- on
1: one subject. Leadership could be that one subject you could spend 50 years on and go, oh, I know this much.
0: Yeah, and I know this one. and I know that war because I was over there for it. And we went out, we prepped, and boom, it kicked off and it was over before we knew it. And I was like, and I got to meet Storm and Norman while well, I was at Shire Force Base and he came at the end. I was I was starstruck. I was like, like I could have met the biggest movie star and I would have been like, whatever. And I was like, Oh my gosh, I couldn't believe oh, yeah. it. It was it was incredible. Um but uh yeah, that 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 knowing that and I think it was Earl Nightingale said that if you just spend an uh an hour a day, ever just work days, we'll give you weekends off, um, you know, which is roughly, you know, twelve Thirteen hundred hours um, a year. In uh, five years, you will become one of the top experts in one area. So you can become that finely tuned. And uh, they talk about that in the doctoral research program. Don't don't be the you know a, a mile wide and an inch deep. Really go deep and that good to great too companies know what their zone of core competence is and they're really really good at it and if something gets fragmented or pulled off that's okay because you know in the publishing industry there's all kind of intersections and pieces pulled off that's okay but you stay true to your core thing which it sounds like you found your company that does that and that's what everybody coalesces behind because that is your that's your identity kind of thing. So, that's- well, I
1: get, you know, I've even had people say to me, you know, how did how have you spent all these years doing one thing? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I, I'll give you one other good example of that. Years ago, years and years ago, I dated an actress in New York. And she had been in Phantom and some of the other big shows, been very, very successful in her own career. So we're out to dinner one night with some of her colleagues and there was one lady who had been in the show since the very first night. And we were out, it was, it was the 10 year anniversary party for New York. So figure how many shows of that when you figure there's eight shows a week, even if they take one or two off, that's six shows. That's, I don't know, 300 shows a year times 3000 shows, let's mm-hmm. say, that this woman had been in. So how in the world do you do the same? Think about it. You, you know, there's no way I'd live. In, in, right. in live like, like you better be where you're supposed to be. Cause that next, You know that next person is doing their line, or singing their next line, or moving a piece of equipment. You you know, like it's it's an organism; it's a moving thing, right? Mm -hmm. And and she made a great point. She said, "Here's what I remember: people sitting in the audience; it's their first show." Right. Ah, okay. So for them, what I'm doing, they've never seen before. Right. So I have to do it well every time, and that's what I've told Mm -hmm. myself over the years. I mean, I can I can tell I can tell my business story in my sleep. But if you're hearing it for the first time, right, about what happened in the details, it has an impact on you. I'm not telling it for me. I'm telling it for you. Mm-hmm. Just like That actor or actress is singing or saying that line for you. Mm-hmm. You spent your hard-earned money to be there. That's the way I look at it is, what, you know, my audience is, hey, these people spent their time and money to get here. Yeah. They need to have some value. They need to be yeah. able to take something home with them.
0: Right. Abandoning yourself to giving it your all. Every presentation, every meeting, every performance. I love that. Last one is vision. And my father said that vision isn't something that, you know, like you said, when you were younger, you you thought it was something that the super smart or the super gifted or the visionaries, a visionary. But my dad always said that vision was just seeing what needed to be done and then doing it. And it sounds like you have that very pragmatic look about, I see an opportunity. And I'm the one that's going to pick up the tools and go execute it. So how, how, do, you, how do you set your vision? How do you get these, quote, epiphanies? Or, or how do you set the direction for where you're going to go next or your team?
1: I'll give you an example you're familiar with. Pandemic starts. I'm supposed to be, uh, I'm, in, I'm in Monterrey, Mexico, when the you-know-what starts hitting the fan.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I'm communicating back to the U.S. and Canada and finding out, hey, airports are closing, businesses, like, things are getting bad. So I come back here to the U.S. This is on March 8th and I get back here to Dallas. I'm not supposed to really be in Dallas. I'm going to be in Dallas one day. I'm turning around, going to Baltimore to do a meeting. And if in Baltimore, I'm supposed to be going to Toronto because the next weekend I have a big event in Montreal Mm -hmm. and I happen to live in Canada part of the time anyway, but and my wife and kids were up there. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I'm supposed to be, you know, logistically, you know, bouncing all over the place. And all of a sudden, it's like I talked to my wife and she's like, the, the Canadian border is closed. You can't get in the country unless you're going to be quarantined 14 days. So I created this whole Zoom-tacular concept, which was I'm going to bring the meeting to them via yeah. Zoom. Now, I know that I created the content where it would be as if you were sitting there you know, in Montreal at that meeting or in Toronto or in Chicago or in Monterey, Mexico, just like you were sitting there where you would get something about our product from our medical people, something about our business from our key distributors, something about how to build a business because at the end of the day, that's why distributors listen to these things right. and something obviously from the corporation to know that, Hey, the corporation's there. It's functional. During crisis, people need to hear at this functionality. Mm -hmm. And he did. And our our CEO did a great job and has has done a great job on on, on all the calls to deliver that, that message. But more than that, they need to hear, hey, there's going to be a tomorrow. Right. Okay, we're going to come out of this thing. I don't know when this thing's over. Nobody does. Tony Fauci doesn't know. I mean, he's guessing with the rest of us. He knows more than I do. But who really knows, right? We look at all of these tables and John Hopkins, and now we're seeing another surge in it. I don't know when this thing ends. But I, here's what I do know. World War II ended. 9-11 ended. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. World War I ended. Korea ended. right? War, wars end. Situations end. This will end. Mm-hmm. Okay? Now, hopefully, it's going to end sooner than later. We've already lost some really good people uh, to it. And a lot of people sick. And not to, co- not to even talk about the economics of it. Mm-hmm. But people need to hear that. Where leadership makes a mistake is when leadership panics.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Leadership cannot panic, okay? Um, I go back once again, I go back to two, two things in my own life. One was, and both, and neither, neither were good times. Uh, one was the death of my daughter, okay? Mm-hmm. I, I lost a daughter now the 18 years. And when I lost her, my family was, how are you so calm? Number one, I believe that she's in a better place. Okay, mm-hmm. But that doesn't, at the moment, that, especially with a child, that doesn't, that doesn't really make you feel all that good, to be honest right. with you. But I knew that there would be another day. I knew the sun was going to rise again.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, No matter how bad I felt at that time, I knew. And I knew for my wife and for my then seven-year-old daughter that they needed to see me not fall apart. I fell apart privately, let me tell you, I fell apart at the gym because mm-hmm. that's where I go. I don't drink, so <laughs> I go to the gym i'm going to work it off in the gym, and I you know i'm there wiping my face crying the whole time I'm there on the treadmill, okay but you you've got to find a place to work it out,
2: mm-hmm. okay
1: that was once, and then i i think um well that 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 was that was one 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 big one, and then i I think the other time. Was once again where, where you know you had to have vision. Seventeen, I think I've shared this story with you. Okay, uh, I was diagnosed with what was called spinal mm-hmm. which is where your vertebrae are basically like this, where they're 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 wrapped around each other around your spinal cord. Mm-hmm. So I lost the mobility in my right side. I was basically crippled my junior year, part of my senior year of high school. So I went from this jock, you know, all out, you know strong kid that lived in the weight room that played football that wrestled to basically doing nothing hmm. and when i had the operation i'll never forget what happened was i had a a vision uh where they came in and they gave me the the uh, you know the drugs to basically start knocking me out and i had this vision okay that god spoke to me and basically told me hey you're gonna get past this it's gonna be all right And then I remember the doctor, Dr. Burton came in, okay, I'm sure by now his daddy was probably in his 60s then. He came in, I'll never forget this man could hold his hand out and it wouldn't move. And I had such confidence in him that that I knew he could fix me. But along that line, you know, sometimes I think back to Paul being in prison and saving the guard, right? I had to have that experience because if I had not had that experience, I wouldn't have read two things. Okay, Doctor Norman Vincent Peale. Okay, was the first book I ever really read it was, it was Doctor Peale's book about positive thinking. Yeah, and it's still on still on a shelf behind me here, by the way. Uh huh. And, and then that was the first book. My father, who was a, a, an alcoholic, uh, had, at that point had had, had he reco- Yeah, okay. At that point, he was in recovery, Okay, had brought me that book and given it to me in the hospital. Wow. And then, of course, as a man thinketh, by James yeah. Allen, and and. If I hadn't read those two books at that time, if I hadn't had that downtime, if everything was great, if I was wrestling along and football and everything was great and I was going to go to a big college and university and scholarship and I was lifting and running and getting ready, I may not have had those moments. Right. And as painful physiologically and emotionally as they were, without those moments wouldn't have created later moments.
0: And and you talked about, I mean, I've taken the last three months too and got things done. I never thought I'd get done. So, I, you know, the, the leadership, great leaders and the leadership literature really talks about when the crisis hits, that affords you an opportunity to get so focused, and I mean, almost everybody I interviewed in my research was like, "I love it because I can get down to business, and everything else superfluous just floats away." And so, yeah, it is a great time to just get down to brass tacks because otherwise, we just get so stuffed full of this non-value-added stuff. And exactly. so, I love that, and that clouds our vision because you know we 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 think everything rises to the top. And I love that you brought up that you know when this happened, you're like, "Okay, it is what it is." Uh, you know, I'm gonna get stress for like 30 seconds and then go, okay, now what? Now, what do we do? How do we adopt yeah. to this? You know, the planet didn't blow up. You know, the rapture didn't happen. So here we are, we have <laughs> to keep going. What are we gonna do? You know, let's just just get on with it. So well, I, I love that. And I,
1: and I, I think in some respects that we're, we as a world, because this is not an American problem, this is a worldwide problem. I think in some respects, we're gonna come out better for this. Mm-hmm. And here, and here's why why I think that, okay, I think family issues that maybe have been ignored are getting addressed. Mm -hmm. Maybe the TV's not, uh, not on as much because it's on, you know, if you're home at three o'clock in the afternoon and you never were after you get past the fact that gun smoke is on at three o'clock in the afternoon, okay, like that, okay, you know what, I don't need to watch TV all night. Maybe I actually talk to my kids or my spouse. Right. I read a
2: book.
1: I think a lot of people are getting back to their faith. Yeah. Whether, whatever their faith is, whether it's the same one you and I share, whether whether it, it, it's others, I think people are spending time saying, "Hey, uh, you know, pandemic. You know, we hit January first. This thing doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Here we are. It's not even. It's not even Fourth of July. And look at what's happened. Right. For Our world. Right. And right. our country and our economics. And and uh, what are we up to? One hundred and twenty, somewhat thousand people dead. I mean, it's mm-hmm. a lot people. I've lost three myself. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, you know, you look at all of that and you start to say, what's really important Mm -hmm. and you prioritize. And maybe now, because we're not in such a rush because we are in a rush, but we're not in a rush now, all of a sudden, maybe people are prioritizing things that in the past hadn't been the priorities that they needed to be. And I know in my case, that's the case.
0: Right. Well, you said it. It's we're more needs focused, not wants. And, you know, part of the thing too, you know, we went through some stuff, you know, when I was younger, there was Vietnam War and stuff like that, 9-11, whatever, being in war. But, you know, the greatest generation was the greatest generation because of what they went through. And how chiseled and resilient and selfless and we're all collective they were and built our nation. And so, you know, we we went through so many decades of prosperity, we didn't have any of the, you know, it was just assumed that life is going to always be like this. And that, you know, we're entitled to all this prosperity that no one else has had the benefit of having, so, um, and exactly. still in 2020 don't. So it's just interesting that, that you said that, and I, I too I too know we're coming out better, and I think it's been a great clearing call for a lot of leaders to go, okay, um, the, we can look at people and really see, separate the sheep from the goats, okay, where are we, and, and do we have this sense of optimism and resiliency that, that we're going we're gonna to push through? And it's something everybody has to be going through with their teams, building their business and themselves. You know,
1: I, I, I've had, I've had adults that are pretty tough that have been in tears. Yes. Yes. Okay. saying yeah, I don't know. Unsettling. I don't know the yeah. I don't know the future. Yeah, And i said, well, you never did.
0: Yes. I know.
1: That's the reality. We don't, we, 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 we really, we never really did. We thought we did because we could project all sorts of things about all sorts of different stuff. The reality is we could, you can't project anything. Now that doesn't mean once again, don't plan. Right. Make sure that, you know make, make, you know, make that checklist, right? Life insurance, wills, you know, this, all the stuff that maybe you've been putting off for years, right, it's a great time now to say, hey, got this extra time, Hey hey, let's pull out that document we did 20 years ago and update it, right, mm-hmm. for example. Mm-hmm. Yes. That was our case. Our Ours was our, our 17 years old. <laughs> I'm embarrassed. To say. My will was 17 years old. Some of the stuff on I don't even own anymore, you know? Yeah. Same wife, same kids, fortunately. But, but you know, like, you know, it's like, oh, my God. We got to, you know, things like that that maybe even put off. Because, look, when this ends, you're going to get real busy again. I know. And those things know. get pushed to the side again. So, right. you know, once again, take advantage of time. You know, there's, there's, there's a, uh expression my father used to use uh, give time, time. Hmm. And uh, I think it's an AA expression, frankly, but, um, huh. it, it's, it's, you know, give time, time. It's like, look, you know, some of these things that you've been putting off, maybe now's the time to do them. Hmm. I know I've talked, and I'm sure you have too. I've talked to friends around the country, around the world for that matter, but more, more, you know, mostly here in North America that I haven't really talked to in years. I mean, really talk to them. Okay. Like what's really happening? Mm-hmm. I, you know like, like like what's really going on in your life tell me because i've missed the last five or ten years because i've been busy i've right. been raising my family building my business tell me what's really going on in your life and i've reconnected with some really great people that not that i blew off i was in contact with them or i wouldn't have been talking to them now but it was more business it was more super, superfluous in the past now it's been more like hey we have time let right. me sit on the back porch and let's actually catch up what, what have you been up to how, nice. how's life and oh. boy, i found out a lot of interesting stuff I've, I've spent more time talking to my two sisters in the last 90 days than i've spent in the last 20 years
0: i know i've really had a great time of coming together with my siblings too yeah yeah you
1: siblings. cannot be a great leader just reading about it
0: mm-hmm.
1: now, you should read about it and you should study it right but you have to do it
0: right so john tell our listeners how they can get in touch with you
1: well probably the best way is just to text me mm-hmm. Uh, my cell phone, which is 972 area code 2590875. Uh 972 972-259-0875. Just send me a text mm-hmm. or you can send me a WhatsApp. If you use WhatsApp, a lot of people use WhatsApp these days. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Same phone number. Um, and just say, you know, put Tracy in it or something. So I know who you are. Uh-huh. And I'll respond to you,
0: you know. Yeah. Nice. He will. He's very good about that. And John, um, John's book is on our website, on TremendousLeadership.com. Um, I think you can get it on Amazon. We can do uh, bulk orders for your team or whatever you want. But um, that, is, that is a brilliant book. So brilliant. I wrote the foreword to it because I just, I mean, I love it. I just love that you help people just take control of their futures um, through their through their finances and through what they do, loving their products. So um, John, it's been an absolute pleasure. And what's next for you? When's the next book coming out?
1: The next book is being worked on. Um, should have it out, hopefully, hopefully
0: by Labor Day.
1: Awesome. Right? We don't, we never know in the publishing world, as we know, we never know what's going to happen, right?
0: You never know what's going to happen, but
1: what? COVID world, we never sure, but the writing's been done, actually. Okay. Uh, we've got all the chapters done. We've got to get the translation done down in Mexico for the Spanish. Oh, yes. Um, we're incorporating, we have about 20, about 25 leaders with cameos in there. Some very nice. top level people, some top earners in the industry, some middle level earners in the industry you know, and, and just some old friends that have been around and worked nice. hard and built businesses. So yeah. um, we asked them four questions, four key questions. So th- that'll be in there. And uh, the guy I wrote it with, uh, a friend of mine in Toronto, Foster who has got a, another great life story. His 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 story is different than mine. He came from mm-hmm. Ghana with nothing. Mm-hmm. Literally, he was an orphan. He came from Ghana to Toronto, of all places, if you can picture that, in the wow. winter. Wow. <laughs> wow. And built a life, built a family, built a career, built a business. So Uh,
0: it'll
1: be, it'll be good. And then after that, who knows, you know?
0: Yeah. Love it. And yeah, for our listeners, John's book is also available in Spanish too. So awesome. All right, John. Well, thank you so much. Um, always a pleasure. And I love hearing your stories. I learned so much more about you and, um, you've really encouraged me as a leader. So thank you so much, John. Likewise, Thank you. Thanks to our listeners. Have a tremendous rest of the day. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to tremendous leadership with Dr. Tracy Jones find out more about Dr. Jones at www.tremendousleadership.com. If you've been ignited by something you heard in this episode, let us know by leaving a review for Tremendous Leadership wherever you listen to podcasts or by sending us a message through www.tremendousleadership.com.